Hey, and welcome to Seven Days, Seven Stories, a masterclass on why we as women hate our bodies so much, about the stories that we've absorbed that have gotten us here, and the stories that can help dig us out. I'm Jillian Murphy, creator of the Food Freedom Body Love Method, and I'm so excited you're here as we spend seven days going from diet culture, the thin ideal, and one kind of beauty to a place of freedom and shift and change. Let's get going. Hey guys, it is day six and I just want to say again how thankful and appreciative I am that you've stuck with me all the way to day six of this masterclass. Tomorrow, day seven is our final, is the final segment of this masterclass where we're going to pull it all together. But today, what we're talking about is worth and beauty. Writing a new story around worth and beauty is imperative. It's not enough just to strip away the old stories, to discern between the culture and our authentic self. It's not enough to just live in a meh place in our bodies. Women want to expand and grow and feel beautiful and desirable. And so that's what today is all about. I've already alluded to it, I think, but there are two parts to this program of writing a new story. Number one is reclaiming our worth. Up until this point, I think you probably picked up on the fact that our bodies and our beauty have become the symbol of our worth. And what I often see with women is when we strip away the old stories, it's very easy to shift that worth onto other things, work, relationships, competitive performance in another area. We want to have proof that we're worthwhile. The problem with that though, is that when we need to deserve worth, when we need to earn it, we're always left lacking. It's like striving for perfection, it just doesn't exist. So we're gonna talk about that today. We're gonna talk about if we don't need to earn our worth, then where do we get it? If our bodies and our beauty and our weight and our health don't determine how worthwhile we are, then what does determine our worth? And then once we've reclaimed our worth, the next thing, the last piece of the puzzle is to own our own brand of beauty, to rewrite the story where we're the princess, not the wicked witch, to realize that we get to make the decisions about how beautiful we feel and how we show up in the world. So let's get going. We are not held back by the love we didn't receive in the past, but by the love we're not extending in the present. That's a quote from the incomparable Marianne Williamson, doing that thing Marianne always does, where she puts everything into perspective. We are not held back by the love we didn't receive in the past, but by the love we're not extending in the present. So beautiful. I'm going to first read to you from Megan Watterson's book, Reveal. Megan, who I've read to you, I've read you her work before already in this masterclass, is a theologian. 
and she's dedicated her life to studying religion and looking for the voice of the feminine, the lost voice, the unrepresented or misrepresented voice of the feminine. It's her deep belief that the lack of female voices within religion, specifically Christianity to date, has really contributed to the lack of worth that so many women feel and the way that it plays into our connection to spirituality. It's, this book reveal is really, really beautiful. I highly recommend it. So here's some reading from Megan. This is the most important truth I have to tell you. You do not deserve love. I know it's a shocker. I remember the first time I heard it. My heart fell out of my chest. All the color drained from my face, and the teacher friend who told me this truth had to pick my jaw up off the table. I trusted him, though, so I worked through the initial slap to the soul that it felt like, and I really let it sink in. And then the power of this truth transformed me. It redirected my thoughts, my actions. If I don't deserve love, I realized, then I also don't earn it. Love is innate. Love is inherent. Love is a birthright. The teacher friend who told me this truth loved me completely, and he saw me completely. I was human and also divine in his eyes. I could be an animal with my passionate emotions, and then in the same moment, an angel of wisdom and insight, which was not a contradiction for him. He loved all of me. Every piece was accepted. At that time, I thought that I loved being in his presence because it was effortless to love myself when I was with him. The unconditional love he gave me was infectious. But I know now, after a decade of being apart, that his greatest gift was making me feel truly worthy. I loved to be with him because I saw my innate worth through his eyes. I was beloved to him simply because I am. This was the culmination of everything I had ever wanted. Meeting him, let's call him Will, was meeting with divine love in human form. And Will gave me the greatest possible soul assignment because he was not able to be with me as a life partner. So I had to learn how to look at myself as he had. I had to find myself beloved, worthy. I had to recover my own divine worth from within. Megan goes on to talk about several parts of her journey toward defining her worth on her own. And I just want to read you this last piece of her story. The second time I saw St. Sarah LaCalle, St. Sarah LaCalle, just as an aside, is one of my favorite saints. The day was uncommonly bright. From the hotel room, I looked up and saw an impossibly cerulean blue sky. Arl, known for the fields of sunflowers that are so gorgeously captured by Van Gogh, was the closest city to Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer I could travel to by train. I got dressed and buzzed around my room with the kind of amped-up energy I usually get from overdosing on dark chocolate. Clearly, I was excited to see Saint Sarah again. Jean-Pierre, my cab driver, was waiting outside my hotel. He had the windows of his taxi rolled down, and the radio was blasting hypnotic music. It reminded me of being swept inside the crypt with the procession on my first pilgrimage. 
The Romani language itself was music to my ears, as if a long-forgotten cadence that articulated a colorful and rootless side of myself I could forget but never lose. The taxi sped along the road that snakes through the Carmag to Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer, as if it had every turn memorized. Jean-Pierre was barely touching the wheel. He seemed to be off in a reverie as the car whisked us past pink flamingos and heron, drawing nearer and nearer to the sea. Jean-Yves Le Loup, in his translation from the Copic of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, relates Mary's emphasis on the true human being to Gita Miles's transcription of Talking with Angels. Both texts, according to Le Loup, bring forth the possibility of the birth in us of the authentic human, which is none other than the Theandros, or the Anthropos, the divine human. On Friday, October 29, 1943, as the Nazi regime reached deeper into the hills of Budapest, Gita Malas and her friends heard a voice that said, You yourself are the bridge. It was eventually revealed that the wise, clear voice each of them heard was the voice of their corresponding angel. According to the seven angels, the true human is someone capable of being a bridge between the material world and the ethereal realms, one who has reconciled the opposites from within. The angels restored a sense of dignity and worth to being human by explaining that we all contain this potential to be both the created and the creating world, to be a part of both the created and the creating world both fully embodied and directly connected to spirit. The true human can remember the divine within and use that consciousness to help create reality through the infinite grace and power of the I am. Lelou interprets Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Mary as a ceaseless recollection in order to hem together the memory of the full human, of the capacity of the human that is one with the divine within. He conjectures that the Magdalene, having recollected or integrated the memory of her full humanity, which includes her divinity, had a clairvoyance or clear seeing that permitted her to live out her last 30 years in the dark caverns and caves east of Marseille in the south of France. In the 4th century, Christianity's first ecumenical council held at Nicaea declared that Jesus was homoousiosis the same substance as the divine and yet also fully human. By the mid-5th century, the hypostatic union, the unity of Christ's divinity and humanity, was part of the creed of Orthodox Christianity. This theological fact drop-kicked me when I first came across it in seminary. It suggests that the human and the divine are not above and below one another, but rather at the same level, or, if you will, intersecting. The transcendent and the imminent are face to face. Or I can explain it this way. Imagine the divine is a large circle and then draw yourself as a circle inside that circle. You and your humanity are not above or below the divine. You are concentric to what is most sacred. Jean-Pierre dropped me off at St. Sarah Lacalle's crypt the queen of the outsiders, and went to meet a friend at a nearby bar. I entered the crypt alone. Unlike the first time I approached this small and powerful icon, there were no eyes on me as I drew near. 
Hundreds of small votives burned on either side of St. Sarah, their flames lick flicking like tiny tongues as I walked by. The air was thick with silence. I embraced St. Sarah the way the women with the mapped face had taught me years earlier. I brought my face close to hers and rubbed each of my cheeks against hers and then slid my thumb down the bridge of her nose. A reunion complete, I let the silence and her presence overcome me. I imagine what it must have felt like for Mary Magdalene if the legend was true, to be here in the south of France with her daughter, an outcast, her spiritual authority never validated. The scholar, Jane Schaberg, author of The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene, had an ardent wish of hearing these words from Mary Magdalene's gospel ring out for everyone to hear. If the Savior considered her to be worthy, who are you to disregard her? Yes, who was I to disregard the Magdalene spiritual authority? And who was I to disregard my own? Worth is not given, it's claimed. According to early Christian texts like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Pistis Sophia, Mary Magdalene was connected to Jesus through visions she experienced in her heart, both during his lifetime and after his resurrection. She had a direct connection to the divine from within, regardless of whether or not that connection was ever validated externally. Her authority came from her experience. The original definition of theologian didn't refer to someone who systematically and rationally studies religion as it does today. Before the ninth century, a theologian was someone who had direct experience of the divine. The word itself derives from the Greek theos, meaning God, and logia, meaning utterances, sayings, or discourses. A theologian had an innate personal experience of the divine, an inner dialogue, a relationship. It was from this immediate encounter that a theologian spoke with authority. I was alone in St. Sarah's crypt, but I still found it difficult to say aloud what I needed to. Now I knew what I had come back to do, to give myself what I had been hoping to get out of degrees from Ivy League schools. I had come to validate the truth of my spiritual existence. The words when I finally said them echoed. I didn't speak loudly or forcefully. My voice was low but strong. Each word fell heavily like a stone I had been carrying around for far too long. I am worthy. We are worthy of love just as we are, and we are worthy of what our heart desires. The volcanic rock our worth rests on is the truth that we don't earn love. A veil lifts with the understanding that we are worthy of love simply because we exist. This is what we have to recognize. Our divine worth as women, not for what we can do or say or provide or heal, but just for the truth of it. Then the choice to get married or to be partnered, to have or not have children, to devote our lives to work or service, doesn't come from a sense of seeking to fulfill our own self-worth. Our worth is already realized, recognized, revealed. We can make choices for our lives from a place of conscious clarity rather than out of an unconscious compulsion. We can heal the past right now in this moment. All we need to do is give ourselves the love we didn't know how to give ourselves before. Maybe you've never allowed yourself to be with a partner you long for most. Maybe you've never been in your body fully enough to feel pleasure. 
Maybe you haven't yet felt the inherent worth of your body. Maybe you haven't let your love extend to the place where your life has seemed darkest, where your deepest regrets live. Maybe you still hold the idea that your worth is determined by something or someone outside of you, and yet the divine is not out there, somewhere entirely beyond us. In being human, we are both mortal and immortal. Simeon, the new theologian, was one of the last saints in the Eastern Orthodox Church to argue for the original definition of a theologian as someone who has direct experience of the divine. He wrote about the succession of spiritual authority passed down through the church fathers from one generation to the next, but he also spoke of a golden chain, an unbroken lineage of spiritual transmission that wasn't passed visibly through the church, but invisibly through charisma through the humility and audacity of those who connected to the divine within. I like to imagine that this unbroken golden chain as an unseen but no less real lineage of women who have come to understand that we have our own spiritual authority through experience, through knowing. We acknowledge our inherent worth and the voice of the divine love inside us. It starts with a look of unfaltering love. It starts by allowing our love to reach where it never has before, to our humanity, to the broken places within. We stand up for who we are, and we give up trying to prove our worth. That's a burden we were never meant to carry. We don't become worthy of love at some point. Love is a gift that comes with being. We recognize that it was always ours to claim. So that's a big story. And I apologize. I am not a theologian and um, I haven't read a lot of religious texts. So I apologize if any of you know this material and I'm, I'm pronouncing names wrong. Um, But wow, isn't that powerful? It's so powerful when we start to uncover the stories of women in the religious tradition and what they can teach us. And so what this reading, this big reading is all about is claiming worth as women and realizing that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to wait until we have to wait on the wait. We don't have to wait till we lose the weight or till the boob job happens or till we have the time to get our skin lasered or whatever. You know, our worth cannot be earned. It is inherent. And I know that religious readings are not for everyone. And so here's one more reading, just a short one on worth from the book Paradise in Plain Sight, one of my absolute favorite books by Karen Mason Miller. The oak tree in the garden drops more than 2,000 acorns a year. Each acorn is both a culmination and a seed. Each carries its own ancestral imprint and the full potential to evolve. In California, the principal propagator of oaks is the scrub jay. A jay picks up thousands of acorns and stores them underground in the fall, and when it's time to eat, it remembers where nearly all of them are placed. A few acorns stay undisturbed underground, and those are the ones that sprout. The lineage of the coastal live oak depends on what a, bo- what a bird forgets, and the survival of the western scrub jay depends on what a live oak leaves behind. It sounds like a willy-nilly proposition, but it isn't. One acorn in 10,000 becomes a tree. 
On the one hand, what a waste. On the other, it works. In the crapshoot of life, you, I mean you, turned up. You rose from the ground of your ancestors, their dust in your bones. Without accomplishing another thing, you are the complete fulfillment of all those who came before you. How could you ever doubt yourself? Reclaiming our worth as women is fundamental to this process. We need to stop believing that we have to change in order to be okay, in order to be of value. As Naomi Wolf said, and I read in one of our earlier sessions, you know, we win when we stop playing the game. When we, we win when we stop buying in and we start becoming playful and following pleasure and just living the homework for this part of the masterclass is just to stop doing anything. You don't need another degree. You don't need to make more money. You don't need to change your, change your looks. You just need to be and you just need to be enjoying. That's the purpose of life. That's the purpose of all of this is to just enjoy, follow pleasure, play, have fun. We win when we stop buying in to the fact that there's so much at stake. There isn't. Your body is not a determinant of your worth. You are worthy just because you exist. And once you fully begin, because again, this is a lifelong process, but when you fully begin to buy into this and stop looking for worth outside of yourself, then you can really start to cultivate and own your own brand of beauty. Well, how do you do that? How do you own your own brand of beauty? Well, you know, lots of women have lots of different ideas about this. I love Naomi Wolf's idea of play. As I just said, you know, it's like having fun with it, experimenting, being curious, asking yourself the question, when do I feel beautiful? And pursuing that feeling as a priority. Um, And then Mama Gina, there's a beautiful article from her that I want to read to you about how she cultivates beauty and her belief about beauty in her life. The article is called, Are You Beautiful? When was the last time you felt beautiful? Are you beautiful? I'm beautiful, are you? I am soft, slim, sleek, and sensual. I take time every day to appreciate, exercise, stretch, and celebrate my body. Do you? My hair is either a mess of curls or swept into a soft, straight swing at my pleasure. Yours? I take a hot bath every night in Epsom salts with a rose-scented candle while reading an inspiring book. This week, Shades of Grey and the Unlikely Peace, Aquahomic. How do you celebrate the end of your day? I start every morning at my altar with prayers of thanks and adoration. The first thing to touch my lips is a huge glass of lemon water, followed by a fantastic workout, either at Soul Cycle with my icon and rock star Danny Copel or the Y with my workout buddy. Then home to shower and slather myself with Joe Malone's grapefruit and basil body lotion. I slip on a pink terry cloth robe and head to the kitchen to make a gorgeous fresh green smoothie with kale, sprouts, spinach, and banana. 
and a toasted slice of fruit and nut manna bread. Does your morning ritual feed your heart, body, mind, and soul? I choose something from my closet that presses me further into my beauty. I, f- I like being barefoot as I work, so jeans with a flowing top or a dress that can be enhanced by bare legs and a fresh pe- pedicure is what is required to allow me to jump from folded knees into a dance break at a moment's notice. Not much makeup, a touch of jewelry, always lip gloss. How about you? Do you dress for you or for someone else's standards? I have the tiniest commute in the world. I walk through a large metal door from my living room to my office and hit my leopard faux fur covered chair and take the reins of the wild filly called the School of Womanly Arts. How do you begin your day? I am 55 years old. 55 can be a time in a woman's life where she begins to question her own beauty. Hell's wheels, darlings, who are we kidding here? Any age can be a time in a woman's or a girl's life where she starts to question her own beauty. We all have been ill-informed by a culture that teaches us to doubt ourselves with way more certainty than it takes to trust ourselves. And when a woman doubts herself, even a shred, even a drop, her beauty is diminished, eventually vanquished. But you will be relieved to learn beauty is always right there right exactly here, just by your side. It's just a reach, a stretch, a spiritual practice away. Really, Mama? Beauty? Are you sure it's not doled out at birth? Hells no, my symphony. Beauty, she is a spiritual practice. She must be courted, tended to, and served like the queen she is. And every woman, yes, every woman, whether she is 15, 55, or barely alive, can invite beauty into her court and have her cast her magic spell. I was standing in line at Starbucks this morning just behind a woman in her late 70s who was gazing up adoringly at the man she was with. Wearing shocking red lipstick and a brightly colored coat, cutting through the rainy day doldrums with her adorable adoration and charm. I want what she's having. What is she having? A serving of beauty so wide, so large, so rapturous, it melted centuries, not just years, and took me to an eternal place of iconic feminine rapture, which is available to all of us all the time when we are diligent about the spiritual practice of owning our beauty. So what is your spiritual practice of owning your beauty? In addition to your homework of just being and knowing that you're worthwhile, I want you to think about cultivating a spiritual practice of beauty. And this, of course, needn't and shouldn't look the same for every woman. It could be as simple as Doc Martens and a swipe of lip gloss, or it could be as involved as the routine that Mama Gina lays out. I want you to think about that question I've asked several times. When do you feel beautiful? Where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing? Where does the feeling come from? And how can you pursue that feeling as a spiritual practice? And the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up this episode, um, I just want to circle back to the idea of privilege in this culture, because I think that it would be amiss um, to talk about 
you know, identifying the cultural storyline about weight and beauty and health and to go through the steps and the practice of beginning to let go of that story and creating a new story and not acknowledge the fact that this cultural storyline lives a little bit within us. We've grown up in it for, I believe, every woman who's going to be listening to this. We've grown up. It's a piece of us. You know, Lindy says in that book, Shrill, I think I read it to you already, you know, part of becoming a feminist is realizing that a culture that you love so much hates you back. (laughs) It's like how I love, love 80s movies. Like I love it. It makes me want to cry. I love them so much. But they're so sexist and fat phobic and weightist. And I love them still. And there's a magicality to that knight in shining armor or being saved by the guy or, you know, that romantic, you know, everything would be better if I just lived in this magical fairy world. And yeah, I've let go of it. I'm not allowing it to run my life. I'm not sacrificing my brain space or my creativity for it. But there's still a tiny thread of it that lives within me. And instead of trying to banish her completely, I've just made friends with her. I was reading um, a post by a body positive Instagrammer that I love the other day that said, you know, something to the effect of, like, if I could have thin privilege or the privilege of the beauty ideal, would I take it? Sure, but it's not available to me, you know, and I'm not willing to sacrifice my entire life in the pursuit of it. I'd rather set my own terms. And It reminded me of my favorite quote, which is anything that costs me my peace is too expensive. And so I've made, I've made friends with that little thread within me, that little teeny tiny piece of me that still loves the romantic idea of buying in and how nice it would be if I could just have the privilege, you know, and I let it exist. I just don't let it dictate my behaviors and actions. I don't let it run me. I don't allow it to cause collateral damage in my life. And on that note, I just want to finish off today with an excerpt from Mindy Kaling's book, Why Not Me? It's called, I am what I am, plus or minus five pounds. I'm surprised when I remember that physically I resemble most women in this country. In the United States, a woman who is 5'4 and a size 10 is probably more common than virtually any other body type. But somehow when she's on screen, it's shocking to people. Almost as shocking as seeing a married couple on TV where the man and woman are roughly the same age. If I were your doctor or your congresswoman or your sandwich artist, you wouldn't be shocked to see me. And yet, because I'm an actress, a grown man was amazed that I put jam on my toast. Selfishly, I hope that after I write about it here, people will stop asking me so much about my weight. I can just say, hey, I talked about this. Go read the chapter in my book. If writers, even well-intentioned writers, stop focusing on that aspect of my appearance, it will become less exceptional, which would probably be good for body acceptance in women who look like me. Besides, there are so many other physical things about me to fixate on. My breasts are a little uneven. I have a scar in the shape of a swastika on my shoulder. That's nuts. And hey, I have character flaws too. This book is basically an expose of them that I wrote myself. Focus on those. They're hopefully more interesting and funnier. I want to say one last thing and it's important. Though I am generally a happy person who feels comfortable in my skin, I do beat myself up because I'm influenced by a societal pressure to be thin. 
all the time. I feel it the same way anybody who picks up a magazine and sees Kira Knightley's elegantly bony shoulder blades poking out of a backless dress does. I don't know if I've ever even seen my shoulder blades once. Honestly, I'm dubious that any part of my body could be so sharp and firm as, as to be described as a blade. I feel it when I wake up in the morning and try on every pair of my jeans and everything looks bad and I just want to go back to sleep. But my secret is, even though I wish I could be thin and that I could have the ease of lifestyle that I associate with being thin, I don't wish for it with all of my heart because my heart is reserved for way more important things. I'll leave you with one last piece of advice, which is, if you've got it, flaunt it. And if you don't got it, flaunt it. Because what are we even doing here if we're not flaunting it? And that, my friends, shall go on my tombstone. That's it for today. Tomorrow is the final episode of Seven Days, Seven Stories. Um, Last chance to get in on the challenge to tell your story or a piece of your story that is important to you and that you want to share with the world. Um, I'm loving reading the stories that are coming in. And so thank you to those who've contributed. Tomorrow, we are going to be shifting directions just a little bit. So I look forward to seeing you back here tomorrow.